0: Welcome to It's Complicated with Mr. Montero. On today's episode, we are going to be looking at part of Chapter 19 of the Brinkley textbook about the end of the Gilded Age. We're going to be focusing on three main topics. The first is party politics during the end of the Gilded Age, uh, farmers and their role the, uh, towards the end of the Gilded Age, and also government regulation at the end of the Gilded Age. So without further ado, here we go! All right, our first topic is party politics. We're going to divide this up into three parts. The first part is context, and the second part will be key people, events, and terms, and the third part will be why does this matter. All right. So in terms of context, remember, context has to look backwards and gives us a sense of where we are. So in terms of party politics, our, con- our relevant context here is we're in the middle of what's called the third party system. It's Republicans versus Democrats. Republicans are generally associated with ending slavery um, in the South. And so they are anti-slavery. Uh, they promoted Reconstruction. They're associated with businessmen, skilled workers, uh, so middle class, upper class. Democrats, on the other hand, are associated with white southerners in groups like the KKK. They're also associated with northern immigrant groups like the Irish, particularly Catholic groups, and the urban political machines like Tammany Hall in New York City in the north. Okay, So that's our relevant context. Uh, for key people, events, and terms here, we have the stalwarts and the half-breeds. Both of these groups are kind of fighting for control of the Republican Party. The stalwarts support the kind of machine politics of rewarding or supporters with jobs and that sort of thing, while the half-breeds saw these political machines as being corrupt and they wanted to reform or change the uh, political system so that it was less about rewarding your supporters and more about your merit and your skills. Um, Patronage is another key term here. Uh, Patronage we've seen this before when we talked about Andrew Jackson and the spoils system. Uh, Patronage is rewarding your uh, supporters with government jobs or contracts so if you're elected to office as president or whatever that means you hire people that supported you and you, they get good government jobs or they get good government contracts so they can make some money so this is known as a spoil system um, an important person relevant to this this topic of party politics is James Garfield, who was elected president, but he was assassinated. Um, And why that matters is because he was assassinated by a stalwart who was kind of, I mean, he was kind of crazy, but he was, he assassinated Garfield over not being given a job in the Garfield administration. So he killed Garfield and announced that he was a stalwart. Um, As a result of this, we have our next term, which is called the Pendleton Act, which was a law passed after Garfield's assassination that said that government jobs should be based on merit. So to get a job, instead of being friends with the person elected who would hire you, you had to take a test, and it was about how well you performed on the test. Um, Our final term here um, for this is the election of 1888. Um, At the time, there wasn't too much difference between Democrats and Republicans over actual uh, ideas, but one of the things they did fight about was tariffs. Republicans wanted higher tariffs and Democrats wanted lower tariffs. So those are some key things about party politics. Why does this matter? It matters because... There wasn't too much difference in ideas between the parties at the federal level because the federal government didn't actually do a whole lot. But at the time, people were very loyal to their political parties um, because of the political machines that existed, particularly in urban areas. And the party identification for people, whether you were a Democrat or Republican, was based a lot around your ethnicity. So if you were Irish or German, for example. Uh, you would be um, a Democrat. Uh, it's also based around race, right? If African American, you would be a Republican because of they were associated with ending slavery. Also, religion. If you were Catholic, you tended to be a Democrat, and also your region. So, depending on where you lived, if you lived in an urban area, um, you are likely to be a Democrat, particularly if you're poor. And if you lived in a kind of rural area, you uh, in the West, you might be uh, a more more Republican. Okay, so that concludes our first section here on party politics. Stay tuned for our next section on farmers. All right, I hope you enjoyed that sound effect because our next section or part two here is about farmers. All right, let's start with context. So when it comes to farmers, uh, things we should be thinking about that happened prior to this time period, which is the 1870s, 80s and 90s. So if I think before this, back in the 1860s, the Homestead Act had promoted promoted settlement in the West where people could get uh, uh, free land if they settled on a place for five years and improve the land somehow. So it encouraged people to move uh, into these Western uh, areas. Also think way back to the 1780s under the Articles of Confederation when we had Shays Rebellion, which is Western farmers were unhappy with um, how things were going and they rebelled. We also had the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. where, again, Western farmers were upset with this idea of a tax on whiskey, uh, depriving them of their economic livelihood. And also Andrew Jackson in the 1830s representing the common man and the Western farmers against the Eastern elites uh, being opposed to the National Bank because lots of farmers went bankrupt during some uh, economic panics. The life of a farmer was pretty difficult. It was hard to make money and often had to borrow money. Um, In the beginning of the Gilded Age, we have this increase in technology that was lowering prices. And so it was tougher and tougher to make money. All right, next we have our key people, events, and terms. Our first term is the Grangers. The Grangers were a group that started off being focused on helping farmers learn from each other about new farming techniques. They're more community oriented. But later on, as things evolved, they became uh, focused on economic issues, kind of like a union for farmers, uh, so that they farmers could get together and uh, try and make more of a profit. The Grangers were strongly anti-monopoly because they felt that railroads exploited farmers by charging them high prices for shipping and the monopolies of the railroads didn't allow for competition for prices there. The Grangers also supported state and local candidates for office, but not federal candidates. And eventually, the Grangers were somewhat successful at getting laws passed at the state level to regulate the railroads. However, the courts, which were very pro-business, remember laissez-faire at the time, sided against these uh, state laws, and so they were rejected. The Grangers are mostly popular in the 1870s, and they kind of lost their popularity at the end of the 1870s. Our next term is the Farmers' Alliances. These were primarily in the 1880s. They took over after the Grangers and they continued a lot of the same ideas, but they included women as full participants. And they, there were Northern Farmers' Alliances and there were Southern Farmers' Alliances. They eventually merged together at, uh, at the end of the 1880s, and 1889. Okay, our next term, next person actually, is Mary Elizabeth Leese. She was a very popular populist speaker that was associated with these farmers' alliances. Uh, she was also associated with the temperance movement into alcohol and women's suffrage. The quote your book uses is that farmers should raise less corn and more hell, which means she wanted them to really speak out about what they saw as the injustices. Our next term is the Populist Party, and really the key one here for this section. They were in the 1890s, and they were a third political party that evolved out of these farmers' alliances. They were supported by poor and middle-class white farmers in the West and South. They mostly did not include the black sharecroppers in the South. Things they believed was uh, increased government regulation of railroads because they saw the railroads as taking advantage of them. They wanted the coinage of silver so that prices would be inflated, allowing them to make more money. They also favored direct election of senators so that it would give the people, regular people, uh, more of a voice in government. Eventually, these populists were absorbed by the Democrats after William Jennings Bryan's cross of gold speech in 1896. Um, So they uh, didn't last very long, but they had a pretty lasting impact as we'll see. Our last term here is the idea of free silver, uh, also known as bimetallism. This was a populist idea. And the idea behind it was that if you, uh, besides having gold as a basis for money, if you allowed silver to be used as money, that would increase the amount of money available and that would create inflation. So prices would go higher and that would mean farmers would be able to pay off their debts easier because they would make more profit, but their debt would have, uh, the price of the debt would remain the same. So it's easier to pay that off. Okay, our final section on farmers here is, why does this matter? Well, farmers were suffering economically due to the lowering of farm prices because of new technologies and better shipping and all that kind of stuff, the stuff of the Gilded Age. And the farmers felt kind of powerless because of the domination of business, particularly the railroads. So the only way for them to really fight back was to get together and try and use their collective power to protect their interests. So just as we saw workers getting together to form unions, we see farmers also getting together to exert their power. Um, And ultimately, like unions, they kind of failed during this time. And the feelings of the farmers at this time really was a continuation of this idea that we've seen over and over again. Uh, back, going back to the 1830s with Jackson the 1790s and the 1780s with the different farmers' rebellions, the Shays and, and um, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion. But the farmers were feel like they were being taken advantage of by these Eastern bankers and these elites, okay? So the, po- the populace were ultimately um, not successful here. That's something that's important to remember. But their ideas later on, we picked up later by a group called the Progressives, And eventually most of the populist ideas like currency reform, government regulation of monopolies, direct election of senators, would be put into law in the early 1900s after the populists stopped uh, existing as a political party. All right, let's start with context. So when it comes to farmers, uh, things you should be thinking about that happened prior to this time period, which is the 1870s, 80s and 90s. So I think before this, back in the 1860s, the Homestead Act had promoted promoted settlement in the West where people could get uh, uh, free land if they settled on a place for five years and improve the land somehow. So it encouraged people to move uh, into these Western uh, areas. Also think way back to the 1780s under the Articles of Confederation when we had Shays' Rebellion, which is Western farmers were unhappy with um, how things were going and they rebelled. We also had the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. where again, Western farmers were upset with this idea of a tax on whiskey, uh, depriving them of their economic livelihood. And also Andrew Jackson the 1830s, representing the common man and the Western farmers against the Eastern elites uh, being opposed to the National Bank, because lots of farmers went bankrupt during some uh, economic panics. The life of a farmer was pretty difficult. It was hard to make money and often they had to borrow money. Um, In the beginning of the Gilded Age, we have this increase in technology that was lowering prices. And so it was tougher and tougher to make money. All right, next, we have our key people, events, and terms. Our first term is the Grangers. The Grangers were a group that started off being focused on helping farmers learn from each other about new farming techniques. They're more community oriented. But later on, as things evolved, they became uh, focused on economic issues, kind of like a union for farmers uh, so that they farmers could get together and uh, try and make more of a profit. The Grangers were strongly anti-monopoly because they felt that railroads exploited farmers by charging them high prices for shipping and the monopolies of the railroads didn't allow for competition for prices there. The Grangers also supported state and local candidates for office, but not federal candidates. And eventually the Grangers were somewhat successful at getting laws passed at the state level to regulate the railroads. However, the courts, which were very pro-business, remember laissez-faire at the time, sided against these uh, state laws and so they were rejected. The Grangers are mostly popular in the 1870s and they kind of lost their popularity at the end of the 1870s. Our next term is the Farmers' Alliances. These were primarily in the 1880s. They took over after the Grangers and they continued a lot of the same ideas but they included women as full participants. And they, there were Northern Farmers' Alliances and there were Southern Farmers' Alliances. They eventually merged together at, uh, at the end of the 1880s, and 1889. Okay, our next term, next person actually, is Mary Elizabeth Leese She was a very popular populist speaker that was associated with these Farmers' Alliances. Uh, She was also associated with the temperance movement, anti-alcohol, and women's suffrage. The quote your book uses is that farmers should raise less corn and more hell, which means she wanted them to really speak out about what they saw as the injustices. Our next term is the populist party and really the key one here for this section They were in the 1890s and they were a third political party that evolved out of these farmers alliances. They were supported by poor and middle class white farmers in the west and south. They mostly did not include the black sharecroppers in the south. Things they believed was uh, increased government regulation of railroads because they saw the railroads as taking advantage of them. They wanted the coinage of silver so that prices would be inflated, allowing them to make more money. They also favored direct election of senators so that it would give the people, regular people, uh, more of a voice in government. Eventually, these populists were absorbed by the Democrats after William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech in 1896. Um, So they uh, didn't last very long, but they had a pretty lasting impact as we'll see. Our last term here is the idea of free silver, uh, also known as bimetallism. This was a populist idea and the idea behind it was that if you, uh, besides having gold as a basis for money, if you allowed silver to be used as money, that would increase the amount of money available and that would create inflation. So prices would go higher and that would mean farmers would be able to pay off their debts easier because they would make more profit, but their debt would have, uh, the price of the debt would remain the same. So it's easier to pay that off. Okay, our final section on farmers here is, why does this matter? Well, farmers were suffering economically due to the lowering of farm prices because of new technologies and better shipping and all that kind of stuff, the stuff of the Gilded Age. And the farmers felt kind of powerless because of the domination of business, particularly the railroads. So the only way for them to really fight back was to get together and try and use their collective power to protect their interests. So just as we saw workers getting together to form unions, we see farmers also getting together to exert their power. Um, And ultimately, like unions, they kind of failed during this time. And the feelings of the farmers at this time really was a continuation of this idea that we've seen over and over again. Uh, back, going back to the 1830s with Jackson the 1790s and the 1780s with the different farmers' rebellions, the Shays and, and um, uh, the Whiskey Rebellion. But the farmers were feel like they were being taken advantage of by these Eastern bankers and these elites. Okay? So the, po- the populace were ultimately um, not successful here. That's something that's important to remember. But their ideas later on, we picked up later by a group called the Progressives. And eventually, most of the populist ideas like currency reform, government regulation of monopolies, direct election of senators would be put into law in the early 1900s after the populace stopped uh, existing as a political party. Our third and final segment on this podcast is government regulation. Okay, here we go. Uh, context for government regulation. Some things you might need to remember going into this section that happened before uh, this time period, we're in the 1890s or so. So you might remember we've talked about laissez-faire capitalism, which is the idea that government lets businesses kind of do whatever they want, and that resulted in the creation of monopolies and trusts, think like Rockefeller and Carnegie and some of the railroad industries. Also, with this time period, you have the failure of unions, right? Remember President Cleveland, he sent in troops to end the Pullman strike. So consistently, prior to this time period, you have government either doing nothing about what business is doing or kind of almost letting business kind of do whatever they want. That's a key idea to, to remember here for context. <laughs> All right, our next step here is the key people, events, and terms for government regulation. Our first term is the Interstate Commerce Act. This was a law passed by Congress in 1887. This is the first major attempt by the federal government to regulate business. In this case, it's focused on the railroads. And some things that the Interstate Commerce Act said were that the prices that railroads charged had to be public and filed with the government, and that those prices must be fair, though there was no indication about how you determine what's fair or not. The Interstate Commerce Act also established the Interstate Commerce Commission to go about enforcing the law. However, uh, the courts, uh, when when businesses sued over this, the courts tended to side with the businesses and limited the power of the law. Okay, our next term here is the Sherman Antitrust Act. This was another law passed by Congress in 1890, so three years after the Interstate Commerce Act. This was another attempt by the federal government to kind of regulate business. And in this case, this was a federal law that was supposed to replace the state laws that were passed by the Grangers that kind of restricted the monopolies and trusts. Uh, but remember when we talked about the Grangers, those laws were kind of thrown out by the courts. So with the Sherman anti Trust Act, it was thought well, if the states weren't able to do this, maybe the federal government could. Unfortunately, for uh, the small, small farmers and those kinds of people, this law was not really enforced very well. It was more symbolic than anything else. The courts opted to not enforce the law whenever it was challenged. and But the one area where it was successful is sort of ironic. It was actually used against unions, saying that unions represented a kind of monopoly of labor, and that was not okay. So This law was intended to limit the power of business, but it really limited the power of unions, so it's sort of ironic. And it had little to no effect on the power of business. Okay, our next uh, term for this section is Coxie's Army. Now, this isn't necessarily an attempt to regulate business by the government, but it was a march that was organized by a populist named Jacob Coxie. And his goal was to kind of gather support by marching on Washington, D.C., to get support for government spending on public works. He wanted the government to get involved in the economy directly by building things that were uh, public works, you know, like dams or that sort of thing. So that jobs could be created for people and give people uh, better economic opportunities. And this would represent a huge shift in the um, role of the federal government. So this is a pretty radical idea at the time. Even though he claimed he was going to get lots of people to march on Washington, he only got about 500 people to get there. And when they arrived in Washington, D.C., they were promptly arrested. Um, And so it was a pretty big failure, and Congress basically ignored him. So this is going to be important later when we talk about the New Deal um, in a couple of – in a few chapters. All right, our final term is the Currency Act uh, when it comes to government regulation. And this is a result of the debate over the free silver silver movement that we talked about in the election of 1896 between the Democrat William Jennings Bryan and the Populists, um, as well as the Republicans. And the Currency Act, what it was, was a kind of a victory by the Republicans where they actually tied the United States dollar more closely to the price of gold only, not silver. And so this was a failure of the free silver movement and a strengthening of the kind of gold standard that the country was, was on. Okay. So those are some key terms, events, and people that you should know when it comes to government regulation. All right, our final segment here on government regulation is why does this matter? So all of these Ideas we talked about with uh, antitrust acts, or interstate commerce act, um, all these things. Um, these represent kind of the first small attempts by the government to actually regulate business. Um, they were not successful, these mostly pretty much all failed, but they did provide a foundation for the future after. Uh, 1900 of the government getting more involved and starting to regulate the economy and pass laws that actually limited the power of business. This also kind of begins this debate about what should the role of the federal government be in the economy? How far should the federal government get into the economy here? Where should they step in? Where should they not? And this is going to foreshadow groups like the progressives that happened after 1900, as well as the New Deal of the 1930s or during the Great Depression. So this is kind of an interesting kind of turning point here where we start to have this debate about what the role of the federal government should be in in the American economy. okay well that wraps it up for this edition of it's complicated uh, uh, from chapter 19 of your brinkley textbook hopefully you can use this information to focus on what's important and understand why things matter and how things connect to what we've already learned previously so feel free to use this as a review tool or listen to it when before you do your graphic organizer or you know, when you have a few minutes free, you don't listen to all of it all at one time. You can listen to it parts of the time. Um, But uh, my hope is that you'll use this to uh, help you remember some of the things that you've read about in your chapters. All right, until next time, we'll see you on It's Complicated.